You are listening to the Diesel Powered Podcast, the voice of Diesel Punk, brought to you by Comic Bento. Get a mystery box of comic books and graphic novels in your mailbox every month, at least $50 worth for under 20 bucks. Visit mycomicbento.com. Also brought to you by Audible. Check out a free audiobook on us at audibletrial.com slash dieselpoweredpodcast. Hey there, all you Hepcats, Cool Kittens, you guys and dolls, you diesel-powered disciples of cool. This is the Diesel-Powered Podcast, the voice of Diesel Punk, and I am your co-host, the artist also known as Big Daddy Cool, Johnny Della Rocca, and I've been sent here from 1946 to talk to you about the retrofuturism of the 20s, 30s, and 40s, this thing we call Diesel Punk, and I am swinging solid from the Houdini room at the Casa de Cool, and joining me on the line is the one, the only, the daring damsel of the skies, Miss Daisy O'Dare. Good evening, Sheiks and Shebas. How you doing? We're doing solid, baby. How you doing? Eh, once this cold gets on out of here, I'll be doing a lot better. Do you have a cold, or are you just cold? A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. (laughs) It's been really cold in Tennessee, folks. We've had our share and our fill of snow for the year. Also joining us all the way from the Dallas-Fort Worth boardroom, the man, the myth, the legend, the boss, Larry Emmett. Hey, everybody. It's uh, it's very nice down here in Texas, I do have to admit. And I feel for all my brothers and sisters in uh, in the southern United States. Yeah, you know, I, I, I moved down from Cleveland, Ohio area to Nashville, Tennessee to get out of the cold. And all my friends up in the Cleveland Akron area are telling me they they haven't had snow yet this year, this season. Which is odd because normally there's snow on the ground for like six months. And here in Nashville, we've been uh, paralyzed twice in the last uh, three weeks with, with snow and ice and, ugh, it's been, you know, bitter cold. I'm not happy about it one bit. Can you tell? <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. I don't miss it at all. We had that last year. As a matter of fact, I'm sitting down here in the podcast studio with a sweater and a blanket around me just to keep warm because I'm in the basement. Anyway, anyway... Well, guys, we got a big, big show. We got some fun stuff to talk about. Doing something a little bit different at the suggestion of Miss Daisy. And before we get to uh, kind of the meat of tonight's episode, uh, I do want to let our listeners know that uh, we are without uh, John Wofford tonight. And uh, actually, 
he is uh, no longer going to be a part of the Diesel Powered Podcast. He's uh, left us to go pursue some other things and, and move on to a new adventure in his life. He does have one last music special coming up in the uh, next uh, couple of weeks. And um, we sure are going to miss him, but we wish him well. And, uh, you know, we really have appreciated his contribution to the podcast over the last couple of years. And, and John, if you're listening, um, don't be a stranger. You're always welcome. Once a diesel-powered podcaster, always a diesel-powered podcaster. And uh, you are always welcome anytime you want to come back. Amen. Well, we've got some an interesting topic tonight. And, Daisy, you suggested this, and I thought it was great. Uh, you know, we, we've been doing the uh, the Diesel Punk and Pop Culture Roundtables, and we've been doing the Diesel Era Personalities. And since it's Valentine's Day right around the corner, um, Daisy suggested we do our Diesel Era Crushes. Who, who holds our hearts from the Diesel Era? And uh, Daisy, since uh, you suggested it, I'm going to let you lead us off. Oh, boy. Uh, so how do we want to do this? Because I think each of us has picked out about uh, two people. So do we just want to kind of do a round-robin style? Or do we want to just uh, do two at a time? Or how do you well, want to yeah, do this? Yeah, yeah. Just uh, tell, give us your, your, your Diesel Era crushes, and then uh, Larry can go, and, uh, you know, then, then I'll wrap us up. All right, here we go. Well, I've picked out uh, two Diesel era figures that I think are uh, very fascinating. And I gotta say, I know um, I don't necessarily like to use the term, but if I had what you would call a girl crush on anybody, it would be on. (laughs) 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 One of the most fascinating lives I have ever read about, Miss Josephine Baker. What do you guys think of her? Oh, oh, she's got, she's definitely at the one of the top of my list. Oh, yeah. Josephine Baker was uh, an amazing woman. Yeah, so tell us what you found out about Josephine, Daisy. The more more that you read about her, the more you find out about her, there's always something that is going to just make you go, wow, really? I mean, this woman led such a big life. She led such a large life. She was not only a famous singer and dancer and the first black woman to star in a major motion picture, but she was also active in the French resistance during World War II and then later in the American Civil Rights Movement. So this was not a woman who sat at home on her laurels and just rolled around in a big pile of money and said, okay, I'm rich, I've made it. No, she she was always doing something. Uh, she started out dancing on street corners, and then that led to vaudeville, and then that led to a job as a chorus girl in Harlem. And she would perform as the last dancer in the line, in the chorus line. Does anybody know what it meant to be the last dancer in the chorus line? Surprisingly, I do not. Back then, the last dancer in the chorus line would be kind of the comedic one. She'd go all through the routine 
a step or two behind, acting like she didn't know how to do the dance. And then at the encore, she would not only do the dance right, but she would show up all the other girls in the chorus line by adding more complex and impressive moves to the dance. And I've seen, you know, footage of her doing some of her famous dances, like the banana dance and things like that. And she always did have a little bit of a burlesque, comedic look to her. You know, she would make funny faces and she would always be smiling. But um, she was not only gorgeous, but she had a ton of personality. And that just shone through in her dance and her performance. But she ended up being the highest paid chorus girl in vaudeville. So this led to her going to Paris and performing in reviews there. And she literally became a contemporary muse to artists like Langston Hughes, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Pablo Picasso, Christian Dior, and Ernest Hemingway, who called her the most sensational woman anyone ever saw. Now, when Ernest Hemingway says something like that, uh, I don't think there's anyone who's going to argue with him. What do you think? No, I don't think so at all. That's fascinating stuff, Daisy. Oh, I don't take a whole lot of pleasure in proving something, somebody wrong. But I do get kind of happy when I'm right. <laughs> so, Johnny, when we, we briefly mentioned Josephine Baker back at our Geekonomicon podcasting, you said something about uh, she had a hand in forming the USO? Yeah, yeah, in the in the biopic of her life, the uh, Josephine Baker story, um, which stars, I believe, Lynn Whitfield playing um, Josephine Baker, uh, the her role in the French Resistance, um, you know, translated on stage, she would uh, go perform for the troops, and that later became uh, she became one of the uh, founders of what would become the the USO, the entertainment branch of the USO. Huh. Well, I didn't see anything about that in what I read, but, you know, that could have been it. But, um, what she did during World War II was just fascinating. She was a spy for the French Resistance, so she'd use her celebrity to get close to high-ranking enemy officials and listen in on what they had to say. And since she was an entertainer, nobody thought anything strange about her traveling all over. And some of her tricks, she would, they would, she would write notes on her sheet music in invisible ink. She would take information she got and pin the notes inside her underwear because, I mean, when Josephine Baker comes through your airport or seaport or train station, are you gonna stop and search her? You know, that's that's interesting because the biopic doesn't go into any of that at all. Oh, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, it is. And and it's interesting that you bring that up because um, on one of the uh, most recent uh, Agent Carter roundtables, we were talking about, um, you know, the deception that she learned, uh, Agent Carter would have learned as a part of the uh, SAO and uh, or SOE. SOE. And, SOE, and, I and, and, you know, Josephine Baker being a spy, you know, as an entertainer, wouldn't it have been new or unheard of? Because Harry Houdini did it for MI6, and Neville Mescaline, who was another vaudeville uh, star. Um, I, I, you know, I'll bet you somewhere out there, there's got to be files and files 
on entertainers just like Josephine acting, doubling as spies because of the access that they had as, you know, in their status as entertainers. Right. You're in a completely different class and you can move around a little more than um, most normal people can. Well, after the war, she was highly decorated. She was awarded the um, Croix de Guerre and the Rosette de la Resistance by the French. And um, she had always had a deep love for France and the French. And because she was so well received there, a lot of times when she'd go to America, she wouldn't get very good reviews at first. Um, In fact, she uh, renounced her American citizenship and became a French citizen. But um, when she went to the U.S. in 1951, she was honored by the NAACP as their Woman of the Year because she refused to play to segregated crowds. And she would call out these um, these club owners in public, in the newspapers, for keeping their clubs segregated. And um, even though she was based in France, she did what she could to support the civil rights movement. In fact, after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated... In 1968, she was actually offered the lead role in the movement. Coretta Scott King actually came to her and said, will you lead us? But she didn't want her children to lose their mother, like Martin Luther King's children had lost their father. But still, it just shows like the amazing amount of clout and respect and how big she was, how big of a deal she was. So when when you were researching, you know, her... her um... Her civil rights battle in the biopic of her life, it, it kind of shows it starting, you know, really as a, a social or a public movement. When uh, she came back from France, she's cast in the Ziegfeld Follies as one of the stars, the headline acts. And after one of the performances, they go to the Stork Club. And the yeah. Stork Club was a whites only um supper club and she was forced to leave even though she was there as a guest with um with uh mr zigfield but william randolph hearst was there that night Mm -hmm. and so i i guess supposedly supported the stork club's position and um josephine under underwent like a, a very public she let him have it. War with William Randolph Hearst. Oh, yes. Yes, she did. <laughs> she was not um, She was not a lady who would uh, take anything lying down, <laughs> as far as I could tell. But, um, you know, America's starting to come around and respect her a little more now. Artists like Beyonce have said that she's a big influence on them uh, but nobody loved Josephine like France. When she died in 1975 she was the only American born woman to receive a full French military honor at her funeral. I mean the streets were so crowded there was no way getting through. They loved her. She was a woman who wouldn't stay in a place where she wasn't appreciated and respected for the talent she had and that's, that's one thing I love about her is that she knew what she was worth. She knew what she could do, and she didn't, she wasn't going to let anybody kick her around, and I really admired that about her. And she never stopped. She well, never stopped. Well, you know, Daisy, we talk about this a lot, 
a, a lot of the big stars, and we're going to talk about this later on. Larry's done some research for us. But a lot of the big stars of the diesel era, especially the women, started out or had a lot of controversy around them. And Josephine Baker's early career was considered scandalous oh, be- yeah. because of that banana dance. And for those of you who oh, don't yes. know, she performed that banana dance um, wearing only a belt with bananas tied to it. Um, She was nude otherwise, Um, you know, topless and and whatnot. And, uh, you know, French audiences loved it. Oh, yes. And and secretly, I think American audiences did, too, quite honestly. Yeah, but but, uh, but, we just don't have we get we have different ideas about things. And sometimes we like to act like we're a lot more repressed than we really want to be yeah well i I mean so she was a huge scandal in that regard and you know um you know women voter leagues and and you know religious conservative groups would would picket her uh performances or they would you know write uh editorials about how scandalous she is but really when you look at her career overall she you mentioned she was the first African American woman to star in a major in a Hollywood motion picture. Yes, yeah, it was a movie called Zuzu, but I think it was 1930, 31. Yeah, um, and w- was that with Cab Calloway? Ooh, I don't remember. I didn't write that down. She, um, another movie, maybe it was her second one she did with Cab Calloway, but she really opened the door for Dorothy Dandridge and Lena Horne. Um, and because Josephine Baker was a Zigfield girl, she was the first African-American Zigfield girl, um, Lena Horne would follow in her footsteps and become a Zigfield girl. And, you know, really before Marilyn Monroe, before Jane Russell, before Madonna, Josephine Baker was the biggest female superstar she was the you know she had yes controversy surrounding her she was labeled a bad girl early on but i mean you look at what she did with her platform and it transcends i mean it just it transcends the 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 decades i know i mean this woman was literally larger than life i mean she was celebrated by royalty famous artists she lived in a castle she had a pet cheetah she adopted 12 children from all over the world and called them her rainbow tribe as a testament to if they are if children are raised right they will grow to not hate each other because of what color their skin is i mean she she was a living legend and i absolutely love her and she is my diesel era lady crush outstanding who's your guy well this being uh, close to a certain holiday, and it ain't Lincoln's birthday, <laughs> I thought there'd only be one that I could talk about that would that would fit. You've heard me uh, talk about, you know how Johnny will say guys and dolls, and I always say sheiks and shebas, right? Right. Yes. Right? Okay. <laughs> I was on mute. You're still here. Okay. Well, the words Sheik and Sheba were 1920 slang terms for good-looking guys and gals. 
Now, the word Sheba came around after Sheik because they needed a word for the girls to go with it. And there's one reason alone that good-looking guys were called Sheiks back in those days. And it was because of the one, the only, Rudolf Valentino. What do you guys think of him? He was a pretty cool cat. He was one of the first um, really popular male sex symbols of the screen. Uh, Now, like a lot of other uh, screen actors, he started out on the stage. His uh, first film role was an extra in a film called Alimony. And at first, he was often cast as the heavy. You know, he was the bad guy, or he was the gangster, or he was some kind of villain. And it's because, you know, he had those dark eyes, the dark hair, his skin was darker, he had these brooding looks. At the time, the major stars were still um, all-American, good-looking, fair-haired, bright-eyed guys. So Valentino, being the opposite of that, would often be cast as a villain. Now, before Valentino, a lot of those roles went to an actor that I had never heard of. He was a Japanese actor by the name of Seshu Hayakawa. Have any of you guys ever heard of him? I have not. I don't recognize the name. Do you, uh, Johnny? No, I'm not familiar with him. Well, I, you know, I know a lot about, um, I'm particularly interested in Japan. I lived there for a while. I studied the language, so I was kind of interested to find out about him, because you don't hear a lot about uh, Japanese Americans in the screen. But he and Valentino were really the first actors, I would say the first male actors, for the women we'd have like Pola Negri and Theta Bera and things like that. But they were the, really the first two actors to make a big image out of their exotic, foreign, dark, and handsome looks. And that's where that look started becoming popular. His first uh, lead role was in a film called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which was one of the <coughs> first films to make over a million dollars at the box office. And to this day, it's the sixth highest grossing silent film ever. So uh, from the beginning, he had a lot of box office power. Now, the film that we all know him for and the film that we get that slang from is, of course, The Sheik from 1921, where he played the role of Sheik Ahmed Ben Hassan. Now, I have not had the chance to see this movie yet. Have any of you seen it? I have not. No. We're bad diesel punks. <laughs> all right. Well, of course, we all know the image of him dressed up like an Arab sheik romancing this lady in a way that most ladies watching that movie had never been romanced in their lives. <laughs> <laughs> oh, even, my. Yeah. But even at that time, he was... um conscientious about his role. He tried not to play a stereotypical Arab character, and he didn't consider his character to be a savage. No matter how much the American public would be like, oh, he's so manly, he's so strong, he's so savage, he did not consider his roles, no matter how exotic they were, to be of particularly savage men. And him being conscientious, he was also kind of sensitive about how the public saw him. See, women, for obvious reasons, loved Valentino. Why? 
do you think the men hated him? Um, well, because their women loved them. And they couldn't uh, rise up to his uh, standard that he set? Exactly. I mean, you and your boyfriend go to the movies. There's Rudolph Valentino on the screen. You look from the screen to the seat beside you, the seat beside you back to the screen, and there's a disconnect there. Wouldn't you think? <laughs> Some things have not changed. <laughs> I guess you're right. Yeah, one of the reasons that men didn't like him was because they'd see him on the screen, the women would see him and compare him and what his characters did on the screen to their boyfriends or their husbands, and they'd always come up short. But, uh, now this is an interesting story. Another reason men didn't like him is because they thought that he was not masculine at all. I mean, he was... He was what we might call a pretty boy. You know, he had the slicked hair. He always wore very fine clothes. He was sort of a dandy in the way he took care of his appearance. You know, and back then that was still seen, that was seen as, he, he was a little too, um, a little too fussy about his looks for the way some men liked and his uh, masculinity was often called into question. Uh, in July, 1926, there was an article written decrying the feminization of American men, and it was blamed on Valentino and his films. Now, Valentino did not like being criticized in the press. In fact, he would often take, he often cut out um, articles that criticized him, and he would carry them around with him, and he would just read them sometimes and just get so mad and criticize them and tell his friends to read them and tell, ask what they thought. So he was very sensitive about how the media saw him, and when this article came out, blaming him for the fact that there's now talcum powder in men's restrooms, he challenged the writer of the article to a boxing match. The author was anonymous and did not come forward, but the boxing writer from another paper volunteered to go in the author's place, so they had a boxing match and Valentino won, so there's that. <laughs> so I love it. It wasn't exactly, he wasn't exactly the sissy that guys thought he was at the time, just because he, uh, you know, he looked different, or because they were jealous, you know. Unfortunately, you know what happens to stars that burn real bright, right? No, what? They burn out fast. And Valentino's death in 1926 was one of the first really huge celebrity funerals and celebrity deaths of the modern age. It was one of the first really widely covered. He was one of the first widely mourned celebrities, I would say, of the modern age. Um, he, uh, there were hundreds of thousands of people in the streets pay their respects at his funeral. And there were people smashing windows of the funeral home to get in. I don't know if this is true or not, but there were even people saying some fans were so sad they killed themselves. That is the kind of effect that this man had on his fans. I mean, have you ever heard of such a thing? I mean, we've heard of such a thing now, but back then they'd never heard of a star having that much impact. Um, his body was taken by train across the country 
and there was a second funeral in Hollywood, and he's now buried in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, where a woman in black carrying a red rose comes to mourn every year on the anniversary of his death. At first it was a myth, at first it was a legend, at first it was a publicity stunt, but now it's become a tradition, and every year around his death, a woman in black will still come to visit his grave, and that's just part of what I think is the sort of the romantic, mysterious circumstances that surrounded his life. You'll notice I don't have as much information on him as I had on Josephine Baker because he was a little bit more of a mystery. And, you know, he did not, unfortunately, he did not live as long. But um, he was definitely one of the first big star actors to really captivate the women of the nation. Well, many people consider him the first movie star. Right, right. He was really one of the first stars of that level, I would say. And even now, you know, you say the name Valentino and everybody knows what you're talking about. Even now. That's the kind of legend he has. That's the kind of staying power his image has had in our pop culture. Very cool. Have any of you seen any of the movies about him? Uh, there's a couple of movies here about him. Uh, one where Rudolf Nureyev actually played him in 1977. I, I never a, have. I saw a PBS. Uh, it was a special about called The Italian Americans. And they talked about uh, Valentino and the struggles he had with uh, uh, discrimination. That Italian Americans oh, yes. were experiencing, and he was subject to it. I believe he's Sicilian, and that made it even more so. He's from Southern Italy, and I believe that they, I understood that that made it all the worse the discrimination that he suffered. Mm -hmm. Right, because people from that area were considered to be really just kind of criminals, almost, wouldn't you say? Yes, that's how they really were viewed. Uh, it was extreme uh, racial bias. And yet somehow he was able to kind of use those looks and that image to his advantage, whether he wanted that kind of image or not, because there are signs that he may not have wanted the image that he got, but it was definitely what made him a star and what gave him the staying power that he's had and why we're still talking about him today. Outstanding. Right. I've taken up enough time. You guys go ahead. <laughs> well, Larry, who uh, who have you picked as your diesel era Valentine's Day crush? Wow, I'm going to try to rise up to Daisy's standards. That's some fantastic biographies she gave us. Um, well, my uh, I guess the main crush I've always had is on uh, for Clara Bow. Um, Clara Bow oh, was, yes. she was kind of like, uh, she was for actresses what Valentino was for actors. Um, she really set the standard. Uh, she appeared in the movie The It Girl. That was her, that was her breakout, The It Girl, I-T. And in fact, that became what she was known as, The It Girl. And by it, they mentioned, well, 
what is it about her? What is what is it about this woman? She just has it. It she just it. has it. And it became that became her trademark. Um she was she had a hard, hard life. Um she was born she as she described it. Uh, she was born in a, quote, bleak, sparsely furnished room above a dilapidated Baptist church. Uh, she was born in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. Uh, she was the third child, but her uh, two older siblings both died in infancy. And when she finally, uh, when she was born, uh, New York was in the middle of a heat wave. They, uh, Around the same time, it, the weather, the temperature peaked at 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, Clara uh, said in a biography once, quote, I don't suppose two people ever looked death in the face more clearly than my mother and I the morning I was born. We were both given up, but somehow we struggled back to life. Wow. Uh, and the rest of her childhood was, was very, very hard. They were horribly impoverished. Uh, her mother uh, fell out of a second-story window when Clara was only 16 and suffered a severe head injury. After that, she suffered, uh, her mother suffered from epilepsy and psychotic breaks. Um, when Clara was finally starting to break it into the moving industry, her mother told her that she quote, would be better off dead, quote. And then one night... Uh, Clara woke up to find that her mother was at a butcher knife against her throat. She was able to fight off her mother, lock her up in the closet, and then they had to have her institutionalized. Um, she said, quote, I never had any clothes, and lots of time we didn't have anything to eat. We just lived. That's about all. Uh, so she had a very early, very difficult early start to her life but when she came on the scene though first she had a very small little part uh in a movie in 1922 called down to the sea and ships and it was a very it was a minor it wasn't the sex kitten role you would think and then she started having those especially with the it girl and when that broke there was no stopping her she was very, very popular. Um, numerous movies, and she went through the twenties. Just adored. Uh, probably one of the most famous movies that she's still known for is the movie Wings of 1927, which may have been one of the most famous movies that she ever did. Um, but she struggled. She struggled in her per personal life still. As successful as she was, her public face, so successful, behind the scenes, it was really very, very difficult at the same time. Most mm. people didn't see it because back then they hid it. They hid it really well. Uh, but she met her father, who she described as being very intelligent from everything I've seen was pretty much a slack. Uh, he showed up after she made it good, of course, wanting money, and she took care of him. 
Uh, and then when the talkies came out, she made several talkies, and they were quite successful. But she didn't like talkies. And she finally said that she just couldn't do it anymore. She started to have more and more personal problems. Finally, near the end of her career, she was nicknamed Crisis a Day Clara. And then she finally had to step down, and that was the end of her career. Uh, she was in True Slides for a while, went into retirement, had uh, several health problems, and finally passed away in 1965. Um, most of us would recognize her because really she was the basis. She was a... It, of uh, well, one of the inspirations for Betty Boop. Yep. She w who was really a mix of her and one or two other actresses, but she was a major influence in Betty Boop. Well, Clara, she was famous for her uh, her red hair, mm. and uh, the one color cartoon that we see Betty Boop in, her hair is red. So I I can see that. Sure. Uh, one of those uh, one of the sayings that most stuck out to me uh, that Clara ever said was, uh, she said, "All the time, the flapper is laughing and dancing. There's a feeling of tragedy underneath." Mm -hmm. uh, it's an amazing woman, beautiful, uh, very intelligent, um, extremely talented, uh, strong. In spite of everything it might sound like, she was very strong, and um, I've always had a crush on her and still do. Yeah, she's um, she was an amazing lady, and she was one of the first real uh, female sex symbols in the movies. And she was just, um, it seems like she's a name that people don't always remember, and I think that's a darn shame. No, you, you'll see her name pop up in pop culture occasionally. Uh, someone will reference back to her, um, but not as much. I mean, she was referenced in the movie Cabaret, uh, most recently in the TV show Bones, uh, but um, not. you're right, Daisy, not as much as what I think she should be. Right, well, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, some more about Clara Bow in a moment, but uh, who is uh, who's your uh, man crush, Larry? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to think about that because there were so many amazing men of that era. Uh, I think when it really gets down to it, has to be Cary Grant. Um, he was just simply an amazing person. Uh, he became uh, he he was born in uh, 1904. He was a English actor, uh, but he then became an American citizen in 1942. And well, he was in well. Let's see. Let's put it this way: in 1999, the American Film Institute named Cary Grant the second greatest male star of the Golden Age. Humphrey Bogart was listed as number first. Wow. Um, I mean, when I think about movies like Bringing Up Baby, absolutely hilarious movie. He shows he could do great comedy. 
His Girl Friday is a masterpiece. I mean, the banter in His Girl Friday is fantastic. What's the movie where he's on the island? Is it him where he's the one that's on the island and this group of school, this teacher and the schoolgirls end up on the island? and? Oh, yeah. Uh, Father Goose. Yeah, that one. I've seen that one. It is a riot. It is fantastic. And, of course, he could do great drama. A notorious to catch a thief north by northwest um great drama um i could go on and on about uh cary grant um you know he and he had a pretty didn't have a lot of scandal oh yes you know he was married and divorced married and divorced and that's pretty common for um uh Act in the you know actors, and it wasn't unheard of back then. He had one child, um, and he had a pretty uh, restful time in the retirement. Passed away in 1986, November 1986. Um, just simply an amazing man. Uh, just the embodiment of good looks, intelligence. Suave is about one of the best definitions of him, I think. And um, like I said, I think that would be a man crush if that was if it was him. Well, very, very cool, Larry. Um, all right, so I'm uh, I'll, I'll start with uh, my quote-unquote man crush. You know, I really have never thought about this, but we've already talked about him on a previous episode, so I won't go into much detail. But Orson Welles is the cat that I would like to be like or, you know, I would have loved to have met in my lifetime. Um, he was just too cool for the room, and, um, you know, he, he's he's one of those guys for me. But um, the uh, the starlet that really holds my heart, because you know... Not to be controversial at all, but, you know, Big Daddy only swings one way, and I am a flaming heterosexual, but I have, I really, really love women. I love them. There's nothing I like more than being around women, the way they, they feel, the way they smell, the way they talk, the way they walk, the way they look, and of all of the starlets... That's the shocker of the century. Yeah, I know. You you never would have known that. Um, <laughs> but of all of the starlets of the Diesel era, the one that uh, captures my heart the most is Veronica Lake. Mm. And Veronica Lake, <clears throat> for those of you who don't know her, she created that iconic look called the peekaboo hairstyle where one one part you know part of her hair falls over half of your face and um you know that that became her signature look um she was a model uh or not model for but she was the basis of the character of Jessica Rabbit from who framed Roger Rabbit, and uh, she was uh, she was uh, really well known during uh, World War II 
for her films, paired with, uh, let's see, Alan Ladd. She, um, they, they were kind of like an on-screen duo in a lot of films. Um, Veronica Lake became a popular pinup girl for soldiers during World War II. And one of the things that I love the most about her is not only was she a talented actress, uh, model, but she was also an outstanding sleight of hand magician. And in the movie uh, A Gun for Hire, she does a, a magic act while singing in a uh, little cabaret kind of reminiscent of uh, Rick's in uh, Casablanca. And, um, and and really, that's what first you know captured my imagination. Uh, and, and she uh, is one of the first magicians to commercially blend sleight of hand magic and music, vocal music. And she was phenomenal as a sleight of hand artist. She did some uh, billiard ball and thimble manipulations that would make magicians today green with envy. She was spectacular. Um, she was seen in the 1982 film Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid with uh, also uh, Humphrey Bogart was in that movie with Steve Martin. What they did was they took clips from old films and they integrated them into the story. Um, horrible movie, by the way. I don't recommend it. <laughs> I think it's fun. I Do like you it. really? Uh, maybe I need to see it again. I saw it when I was a kid. I thought it was horrible. But um, maybe I'd have a different opinion of it now. Um, I mentioned that she was uh, the the model for the animated character Jessica Rabbit. Um, and in the 1997 film L.A. Confidential, Kim Basinger won the Academy Award for a Best Supporting Actress for her portrayal of a Veronica Lake lookalike. And um, in the uh, in the cartoon series. Rocky and Bullwinkle, there's a geographical feature called Lake Veronica, which was a recurring joke in the uh, cartoon series and the film. And um, so she she had quite a, a, an impact on pop culture. Unfortunately, Larry, Veronica Lake, much like Clara Bow, had uh, some pretty severe issues with mental illness uh, depression and um, alcoholism, and uh, she died in 1973 at the age of 50 of cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, acute hepatitis and kidney injury is is the official death certificate. And um, so she uh, she actually you know was one of those stars who had a you know, like this meteoric rise and then a really sharp fall. Her last movie was in 1951. So she was doing movies from 19, uh, I want to say 42. Yeah. 1942 to 1951. Very short career. But uh, huge impact on 
pop culture today and uh, other projects. Now, Larry, that brings us kind of to uh, our secondary subject, and that was when I was researching uh, Veronica Lake. My, my second pick, by the way, was Mae West. And, and as I was... Oh, goodness. Yeah, as I was researching those, those people, um, something stuck out. Because I went and I did some research on uh, some additional research. You didn't just say that. Oh, Yay. no, I did. I did. <laughs> but not in the way that you meant it. Oh, my gosh, Larry. <laughs> oh, we are not rated PG anymore. Um, uh-uh. Well, no. So, I, you know, I did. I was doing some research on Mae West and, and also Clara Bow and uh, going back and refreshing myself with Josephine Baker, who I'm a huge fan of, and, and started looking at some other um, – other starlets of that era and the one thing that set veronica lake apart from most of her contemporaries is that even though she was a pinup girl there's no i can't find anywhere that she appeared nude and that is actually a little bit unusual for the era right because clara bow in wings she had a I think a semi-nude scene. Uh, so she was no, she was nude. Yeah, yeah. She, it was. It was. It's uh, considered one of the revolu- You know, one of the like groundbreaking nude scenes in in early film. But Clara, you you look up Clara Bow and you see, I mean, naked pictures all day long. You look up Josephine Baker, and there she is. You know, topless and well, and and nude in um, the movie. Uh, Zuzu, and she did a lot of nude photography in France. Um, there, um, Mae West, uh, you know, appeared nude in photos. Um, there, there were all kinds of starlets. And the more I researched it, the more it became apparent that before the, uh, what was it, before the codes, um, starlets appeared nude in photos and, and film on a regular basis, um, you know, in a very commercial way. And Larry, I asked you to kind of research that a little bit more. What did you find out? Well, that's a real good question. A lot of it does indeed have to do with what's called sometimes the Hayes Code, which is really a misnomer. It was called the Motion Picture Production Code, it was named after Hayes, who was a uh, who was the president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. Um, but yeah, I, there's a lot of truth to what you're saying, especially during the 20s. Um, we do find a lot of risque uh, material from that time, and they went out of the way to. Uh, push the envelope to try to get uh, people to come in. And the movie industry started getting nervous uh, because they were worried there was going to be a government crackdown. But prior to the time that it really took off, the uh, which is in 1934, uh, it was pretty much – I won't say it was Wild West – level of uh, anarchy but it was pretty uh, unrestricted 
uh, they were churning out movies named, titled uh, Safe in Hell, The Devil is Driving, um, Laughter in Hell, The Road to Ruin, and they were known as sex films. Uh, and a lot of these movies that we look back and we kind of think they're kind of fun were really quite risque um, for the time. And there was a lot of pushback from uh, primarily uh, religious and moralist groups who were worried about it corrupting the youth. Interestingly, at the time, they knew it wasn't the men that were that these movies were appealing to. They were actually appealing to women. Uh, women were living, I guess, through the women on the in the movies, living the lives that they couldn't live. Uh, so you're right. Now I think when it comes to Veronica Lake, I think it was because of the time of her career uh, by the time she started making movies the Hayes Code had really started kicking in and she really started making her breakthrough roles in the 1940s and things had gotten pretty well things had gotten really quite under control at that point so I think World War II really had a big uh, effect on now, I don't know would Veronica Lake had pushed the envelope had she been uh, around in the 20s. Remember, she was born in 22. Um, I don't know. But certainly it wasn't going to happen in the 1940s and definitely not in the 50s. Uh, and that may explain why uh, it was a little bit different for her. But you're right. Uh what they call pre-code they really pushed the envelope and once the code went to effect because we forget the Hayes Code was not government run it was the motion picture industry trying to what they thought was head off uh, government censorship that's what they thought was going to happen yeah it was voluntary it was well, it was voluntary in a sense, yes. Um, it was rather bizarre because there was one code in it that said, for example, they couldn't ridicule a foreign government and its traditions. And they used that to try to stop movies from being made critical of Nazi Germany prior to the war because the anti-Semitism was considered part of their culture according to the movie industry, which is rather bizarre considering how many uh, uh, Jewish uh, executives were in uh, the movie industry. In fact, the irony of it is that in 1929, and actually 34, it was largely written by uh, Roman clergy. And one author said it was a Jewish industry Preaching Roman Catholicism to American Protestants. It was a bizarre code. Um, so, I guess, yeah, it was kind of a rite of passage in the 20s and expected, but the Hayes Code really slammed it down and put a stop to it.
Interesting, interesting stuff. Well, uh, you know, I just... The Hayes Code code also affected animation, too. Like, you can tell by the dress Betty Boop is wearing, whether it's pre- or post-code. Oh, that's a very good point. Indeed. She had to change from being a flapper to wearing uh, skirts and uh, everyday dresses. She went from flapper practically to housewife. That's true. Wow, that's uh, that's that's pretty cool. Lots lots of good stuff there, and um, I'd love to know what our listeners, uh, who, who your uh, diesel era crushes are for Valentine's Day, uh, send them to us at feedback at dieselpoweredpodcast dot com. Let us know who uh, who holds your heart. That uh, that would be really cool. So uh, before we leave, I want to share a couple of news items uh, as you guys may or may not know my uh, book tales from the flip side has uh, been nominated for a pulp arc award uh, this is uh, one of the uh, many awards that are given to new pulp uh, nominated by the industry uh, I've been nominated as best new author and uh, my book has been nominated for best novella um, novel under 30,000 words. So um, go to uh, pulparc.com and uh, vote for me. The nominations are open right now, and, and voting is open to the public. So uh, our listeners uh, can go and vote for me. That would be fantastic. And, uh, Larry, did you see this? That the Maltese Falcon is coming back to theaters. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, I posted it on our uh, Facebook page. I saw it the other night. I, I went to see, by the way, um, Hail Caesar. Oh, yeah. How is it? Ooh. Yeah, you know, it's a, a Coen Brothers movie. They're the guys that did uh, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? And Big Lebowski, Fargo, Raising Arizona. Um, it was uh, very different from what I expected. Set in 1951. Um you know, at the tail end of the golden age of Hollywood. And um, uh, it, it was good. It was good. Uh, a lot of scenes I really, really loved. In particular, Channing Tatum plays a, um, a song and dance character. I, I don't want to give away any plot points to the film, so that's all I'll say about him. But uh, he does a song and dance number that is on par with anything that Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire did during that golden age. It's phenomenal. Worth seeing the movie just to see that. Um, But anyway, one, one of the previews at Hail Caesar was for the 75th anniversary release of the Maltese Falcon it is being re-released to theaters through um, through uh, uh, um, what, what is that company? Um, Th- uh, Fathom Events. Oh and, yeah. Uh, the Turner Movie Classics—they're the ones that released Casablanca to theaters again a couple of years ago, uh, February twenty-first. So next Sunday, it will be hitting. Uh, it'll be one night only in theaters around the country. You can go to fathomevents.com and uh, find out where it's playing near you. 
speaking of movies, um, I don't know if we talked about this last time. There's a new movie. It's a biography of Jesse Owens. Oh, my gosh. It's called Race, Race and Owens. it looks phenomenal. It does. I'm a big fan of Jesse Owens. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see that. Yeah, that, that looks phenomenal. That I saw the preview of that at Hail Caesar as well. So, yeah, good, good stuff. Good movies stuff coming out. Yeah, there there really are. There there are a lot of good stuff coming out, and um, we need to support it so that they keep making more of it. Um, Larry, uh, let's see. Before we leave, I want to remind our listeners that uh, Daisy and I can be heard on the Agent Carter Roundtable this week. We'll be recording that tomorrow night. Um, so uh, lots of great stuff happening on TV. Uh, with the Diesel era. I don't know. Have you been watching that show, Larry? Yeah, I've been trying. I think I'm behind by about one or maybe two episodes. But, yeah, I've been keeping up with it. Well, the the most amazing thing, and we've been talking about this every week on the roundtable, is just the attention to detail in that show, in the clothing, the, the architecture, the the sets, the cars, everything is just tack perfect. And we're going to talk about some of the future tech that would, you know, fit as punk and the aesthetic of it uh, tomorrow night as well. So um, if you guys are listening to this and you're not watching Agent Carter or you're not listening to our roundtable, you need to check out both because Agent Carter is diesel punk on TV right now. Well, guys, you guys got uh, any last words before we sign off for tonight? Well, let's just hope that um, make sure you uh, comment or just let us know by email who your Diesel Eric crushes are, and maybe we can talk about some of them in the future. Gotta keep the listeners happy. But I hope you have a great weekend and a happy Valentine's Day to all of you. I love you. Go. Have fun. Be free. Larry? Uh, well, no, I can't say, you know, Daisy's right. Let's hear what you want, you know, who your crushes are. I really look forward to seeing that. Uh, and, you know, you know, yeah, for most of us, weather's getting nicer. For those of us in the north, south, though, Johnny pointed out that you're still getting a lot of ice and snow. Check on your neighbors. Make sure you bring the dogs in. Take good care of each other because that's what life is all about. Amen, brother. Um, I also want to add, uh, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, go to iTunes and give us a good review. When you do a review on iTunes for us, give us a five-star review. It helps increase our rankings and our ratings, and it gets the word out to more people about this awesome thing we call Diesel Punk. So uh, help us out with that. Give us a review on iTunes. Drop us a comment on Facebook. Share the page with your friends and family. And um, that'll be fantastic. And until the next time, as always, swing hard, swing often, and we'll catch you on the flip side.